might uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're going to spend a good portion of our time there in that passage of Scripture. I want us to consider from this chapter some of the bold claims that Jesus made. Now, the first claim comes right on the heels of a very interesting story that highlights the grace and mercy of Jesus. It also highlights his wisdom in dealing with those who were trying to test him. And and many of you will remember this story. There was a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and she had been drugged by the Pharisees and thrown at the feet of Jesus. And it makes you wonder if they were spying on her. Were they snooping at her window? Maybe even they had bribed a man to go and be with her just so that they could use her against Jesus. You notice from the text that the man was nowhere to be found. He was not being accused for this wrongdoing. Only the woman was being accused. They threw her at Jesus' feet and they said, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say, Jesus? And he recognized their evil intent. He knew that they were trying to trap him. Instead uh, of him, he knew that if he said, let her go and forgive her, then he would be contradicting the law. He also knew if he said, stone her, then the people could question him about his message on love and forgiveness. So instead of answering them immediately, he simply bends down, stoops to the ground, and he begins to write in the sand. We're not sure what he was writing, but the Pharisees press him for an answer. Finally, he stands back up, and he looks at them directly, and he said, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He then bent back down to the ground, and he began to write in the sand. Some wonder if he was writing their sins in the sand. Verse 9 says, when they heard this, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. So all of these Pharisees, Jesus has answered so wisely. They have not been able to trap him. They depart And Jesus is left with this woman. There are people all around. This is the temple court that they are in. And Jesus stands up. He says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What a story of God's grace. Amen? And aren't you glad? Aren't you thankful for God's grace to you? Uh, All of us can give thanks to him and praise for that. On the heels of this story, Jesus makes his first bold claim of John chapter 8. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I want you to think with me. Who else in Scripture was referred to as the light? God was. God was light. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Going back to the pages of the Old Testament, David said it this way. Psalms chapter 27 verse 1. The Lord is my 
light and my salvation. The prophet Isaiah referred to God as our everlasting light in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19. And then there is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Let me read it to you. It says this, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, who do you think the prophet was talking about there? He's talking about the Messiah. That the Messiah would come one day, and he would be the light amidst the darkness. So for Jesus to say in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, it was a very bold claim. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to have power over darkness. Note, he did not say, I am a light. He did not say, I am one of many lights. He said, I am the light of the world. There are so many bold claims in this chapter of John's writing. By the time Jesus is finished making his claims, the Pharisees are ready to kill him. He referred to God as his father in verse 16. Verse 23, he said that he was not of this world, rather he was from above. Verse 24, another claim. He said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I want you to let that just sink into your mind for a moment. That's that's a pretty bold claim. Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. I can imagine the Pharisees were like a pot of water that was put over the fire. They were getting hotter and hotter by the minute. They were about to reach a boiling point. And then comes verse 46. Another bold claim. Jesus says this, which one of you can convict me of sin? Why don't you try that wine at your dinner table today with those that you're eating with? Why, just for discussion's sake, why don't you just throw that out and say, which one of you around the table can convict me of sin? Why don't you see what kind of response you get? <laughs> Jesus says that to the Pharisees, and even more amazing to me than the question itself is the silence behind the question. Even his enemies could not come back at that question and, and, and with an accusing finger. They could not accuse him of sin. Then there's another bold claim in verse 51. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now think about that. That's, that's a pretty bold claim. You believe in my word, you keep my word, you will not die. Now, the Pharisees, as they heard this, they thought he was talking about a physical death and he was saying to them, if you keep my word, you'll never die. That isn't what he was saying. He wasn't talking about a physical death. He was talking about a spiritual death. He's saying, if you keep my word, you will never die 
spiritually. But the Pharisees misunderstood him. They thought he's talking about a physical death. And they said to him, you have got to be kidding. You are saying if someone knows you, if someone keeps your word, they will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. The prophets died too. Are you greater than the prophets? How can you say this? Who do you think you are? You have a demon, they said. Look how Jesus answers them. Verses 54 through 56, if you have your Bibles open, to John chapter 8. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Oh my goodness. Did Jesus just say to them that he was around for Abraham to see him? You know how long ago it had been since Abraham had walked the earth? 2,000 years. And yet Jesus is saying to these fellows, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in me. Look how they respond in verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? You know, they're exaggerating here. Jesus wasn't anywhere near 50 years old. He's, he's around 33, 32. He's, he's six months away from his death. And when he died, he was 33 years old. So Jesus wasn't even close to 50 years old. These fellows are exaggerating. As he says to them, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. They're saying, you're crazy, Jesus. You're not even 50 years old. How did Abraham see your day and rejoice? You are insane. Look what Jesus says at verse 58. 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Did he really just say that? Did, did he really just call himself I am? And whose name was that? God's name. God's name was I am. And and everyone knew that. It was his name in the Old Testament. When Moses was standing at the burning bush and God called him to go to Egypt and deliver his people from slavery, Moses, you remember, he began to make all kinds of excuses. He was, he was saying, I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. I, I, what if they won't listen to me? Who should I tell them has sent me? And when he made that excuse, when he said, who shall, who shall I tell them has sent me? God said, tell them, I am has sent you. Jesus has just used God's name in reference to himself, and the Jews didn't miss it. Verse 59 says, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself 
in the temple. This was a very bold claim. In fact, I would dare say to you, this is the boldest claim of Jesus' entire ministry. Maybe it is even the most clear claim as he says to them, I am God. That's what he was saying. As he uses God's name, I am, he is making an unmistakable claim that he was and is God. Now, let me give to you a second point. The claims of Jesus call for us to make a decision about him. In other words, we have to decide that what we are going to do with these claims. Are we going to believe Jesus with these claims? Was Jesus speaking the truth when he made these audacious claims? Was he, is he, the light of the world who exposes all the darkness? Is he the one who has come down from heaven? Is he the great I am, the ever-present one, the all-sufficient one? Is he God in the flesh? His claims force us to answer these questions. C.S. Lewis made this statement many, many years ago. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. I think it's one that we need to look at today. Uh, It's in your bulletin. And we'll have it on the screen. Let me read it to you. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Uh, It couldn't be said any better than that or any stronger than that. The claims that Jesus made about himself force us to make a decision about him. Either he was and is who he said he was, or he is an absolute idiot. One of the two. There's no, there's no room for anything in between. These claims force us to decide. Now, I'm pretty sure most of us here today would say that we believe his claims. We, we, would, we would say, yes, I believe he came down from heaven, that he is from God. I, I believe he's the light of the world. I believe that he is the great I am. Most of us here have no problem saying that. But we need to understand, if that's what we really believe, then there needs to be a certain response from us. That decision to say, yes, I believe his claims, it... it it just 
brings forth a certain response from us. And the response must be this, that we would fall at his feet in worship and obedience to him. If he is God and and the great I am, we must be fully surrendered to him. If he is the one who holds the power in his hands over death, then we must be wholeheartedly serving him. We need to be saying yes to holiness and we need to be saying no to the world. Anything less than that response would be foolishness on our part. So let me, from this point on, simply give to you evidences as to why we can believe that He is God. I don't think that He's wanting us or asking us to believe in a blind faith. We don't have to have a blind faith. There is evidence, there's lots of evidence as to why we can believe that Jesus is God. And the first evidence would be simply this, and we've talked about this and throughout this series of sermons on Jesus and his life, the fact that his miracles give evidence as to who he was. No one could do the miracles that Jesus did unless he was God, only God can open the eyes of the blind and, and, <clears throat> and raise the lame to walk. Only God can multiply the loaves and the fish to, to feed a crowd of 5,000 men and, and the women and children in addition to that. Only God could walk on the water and, and, and calm the storm. A mere man could not do those things. Jesus was more than a mere man. He was God in the flesh. And keep in mind, there were plenty of eyewitnesses to these miracles. These are not fantasized stories that are made up by the gospel writers and and no one to, to give witness to them happening. No, there were lots and lots of witnesses. They saw these miracles. They testified as to their truth. And by the way, no mere man could raise up from the dead like Jesus did. He was and he is the Son of God, the great I Am. Let me give to you another piece of evidence that Jesus is God. His sinless life. And we talked earlier about his asking the Pharisees, which one of you convicts me of sin? The amazing thing is, they could not find a reason to accuse him. And this was the perfect opportunity for them to do that. He's he's presenting them this chance to, to accuse him of wrongdoing. Even his enemies cannot accuse him of doing wrong. His disciples, who had been with him for three years... They had no reason to point the finger at him and accuse him of doing wrong. And even his family members, his siblings, his mother, they could not speak up at this time and say, you remember when? No, there was none of that. Because Jesus was perfect. 
He was without sin, the Scripture says. Hebrews chapter 4.15 says, He was tempted in all things as we are, yet He was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He knew no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. He was completely pure. Even the words that He spoke, He was without sin. So we can conclude from that that as he made these bold claims, they were completely true. They were not exaggerated. They were not 75% true. No, they were 100% true because he, being God, cannot lie. That's what the Scripture says. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. So how can we know that Jesus was God? His miracles? His sinless life? Let me give to you a third piece of evidence that supports Him being God. That is the testimony of those who were near Him. What about God the Father's own testimony about Jesus? What did did God say about Him? This is my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased. Three different times God said that. At his baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration, and in the temple courtyard. God said from heaven, this is my son. Believe in him. Hear him. What about Peter's testimony of Jesus? Peter was one disciple Probably as much as any of the others. Maybe John, maybe James, would have, it would have been true of them. These three were around Jesus more than any other disciple. And when given the opportunity to testify as to his faith about Jesus, Peter stepped forward and said, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was Peter's testimony. What about Thomas's testimony? You, you remember what Thomas had to say about him? After the resurrection, Thomas said, My Lord and my God. What about the Roman centurion's testimony? He was right there at the foot of the cross. He watched Jesus die. For six hours, he watched him die. And after his death... The Roman centurion said, surely this man was the Son of God. Well, what about the demons' testimony? They knew who Jesus was. One of the demons that was cast out said this, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. How about point number Four, evidence number four as to why we can believe that Jesus is God. What about our own testimony? I mean, what's he doing in your life? What has he done for you that gives evidence to you that he is God? Well, a lot of us could give testimony. I can give a testimony. He has been so gracious to Cindy and I through the years But particularly, I'm thinking of these last couple of months, the the grace that He has lavished upon us. 
When, when your wife is told within one week's time that she's had a heart attack and that she has cancer, that gets your attention in a hurry. And, and certainly it got our attention. It was shocking news to us. And, and it, it reminded us of how fragile life can be and how weak we are and, and how much we need God. We began to pray. Our family was praying. So many of you were praying for us and we felt the strength of God getting us through and we appreciated your words of comfort and your love and your notes of encouragement and your hugs. We, we wanted our brethren in India to be praying too. We found out a long time ago that when we need special prayer support to contact the brethren in India because they take prayer seriously. And I got on the email and I contacted Ajay and I contacted EK there in India and I asked them to be praying for my wife and both of them contacted me back. Ajay called me on the telephone and he said to me, Kevin, I want you to know that we are contacting our prayer warriors. We are not just emailing them and asking them to pray for Cindy. We are calling our preachers on the phone all over India and we are asking them to get their churches praying for Miss Cindy. He said, I assure you all over India, there will be thousands of of people on their knees praying for her. And he said, I feel like, I, I feel in my heart, she's going to be healed. And E.K. was the same way. He and his family and the people in the churches there were crying out to God in behalf of Cindy. And they were fasting and, and praying all through the night hours, he said. And he was saying the same thing. God is going to heal her and he will be glorified. And so last two, it was two weeks ago, that we went to the cardiologist in Kansas City and, and, and he told us that he didn't think that she had had a heart attack. And when he said that, that was like music to our ears and we began to, to realize God is answering our prayers. Now the doctor said that she did have an abnormality with her heart. And I, I, I thought, I, you know, I could have told him that. She's not normal. A little weird. But he said she did have an abnormality with her heart, but, but it was working fine. The, 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 it was not enlarged. The, the circulation was good. He, and you know what he said as, as he said goodbye to us? He said, go home and live your life. And we went out of that office praising the Lord and giving thanks to Him. He is good and He is gracious. But you know what? If the news had been different than that, He would still be good and He would still be gracious. And we were praying all through this journey that we could trust Him and that we could praise Him regardless of whichever direction all of this went. But it was a blessing to hear good news from the cardiologist. And next was the oncologist. And that was this last Wednesday. 
And we had high hopes that the cancer was all contained to the gallbladder, which was removed surgically in early December. And sure enough, on Wednesday afternoon, the doctor gave to us that kind of report. He said, of these tests that have been run these last few weeks, there are no signs of cancer anywhere in your body. And he said practically the same thing as what the cardiologist has said, except he said it this way, Go enjoy your life. Amen? I praise God for that. We had, we had high hopes of that kind of news. And that's the kind of news we got. But I understand this. Not everybody gets that kind of news. And so amidst our rejoicing, we understand we need to weep with those who weep. And we feel for those who get a different kind of report than this. And we fully believe this with all of our heart, whether it's a positive report or a negative report that you get from your doctor, God is still good all of the time and he is present and he is worthy of our praise. Because he doesn't change. God and His Son Jesus are the same no matter what. They are gracious all of the time. They are present all of the time. They are the great I Am. And whatever it is that you need in your moment, in your journey of life, whatever direction it's going, God is sufficient. He is the ever-present One. He is the all-existing One. And He will give to you what you need. He and His Son Jesus are the great I am. And they will never, ever let you down. And that should be our testimony to the lost world. Whether we can say, He has healed me physically, or whether we can say, He is sustaining me through hardship. May that be our testimony and may the world know that Jesus is who he said he was because of your testimony. How he is sustaining you. I want to ask you, have you surrendered to the great I am? Have you made him the Lord of your life? If, if you believe that He's the Son of God, if you believe that He is the one who came, came down out of heaven, that He has the power of death in His hand, and that He is the great I Am, then your response needs to be total surrender to Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that You are deserving of that kind of response from us. And anything less than that is not enough. We praise you for who you are. You are everything that we need. Help us to be what you want us to be. Help us to trust you. I know that there are brothers and sisters here today whose journey is much more difficult and much longer 
lasting than ours these last two months. So I pray for them. I pray for them to have strength, your strength. May they sense your presence and your help. And Lord, if there's anybody here today who's not bowed their knee to you, would you convict them, please? We pray this in Jesus' name.